Welcome to the Epicenter Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message from the Gospel series, where we reveal one book of the New Testament every week. For more information about Epicenter Church, visit epicenterchurch.com.au. Hello, Epicenter Church. Hi, you're doing well. The book of Revelation. I have to be very focused today, obviously, because uh, we don't want to disappear down rabbit holes and never be seen again. (laughs) So you'll find that, you know, what I'm going to say is pretty much on these PowerPoints. Uh, Because of my eyes and that, I can't do it any other way nowadays, but it should be at least entertaining for you. So what we're going to do is we're going to do some quick facts and then we're going to move on to something uh, a little bit more dramatic, something that I can guarantee that most people here would not have heard of before. I guarantee there'll be at least one thing new, something you haven't heard of. But let's go to the quick facts first. Obviously, the book name. The name is taken from a Greek word. It's called apocalypsis, and it simply means revelation. It's where we get the word apocalyptic from. But the revelation has the, uh, the insinuation that it's a rescue, that it's a, uh, sorry, not a rescue, it's that which had previously been hidden, which is now revealed. And we know that the Lord has hidden things in the Bible, but he wants us to find them. And his revelation is progressive. So as we see prophecies being fulfilled, and as we get more and more knowledge, the prophecies and the revelations start to make more sense to us. The author is obviously John the Apostle, and he wrote it whilst he was imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos. Most people think around about 95 AD. We know that because historians tell us that he returned from the Isle of Patmos before the Emperor Domitian died in 96. So we've got a fair idea of the date. The outline of the book is very simple. It's given in the book itself in uh, chapter 1, verse 19. The things which you have seen are related in chapter 1. The things which are present tense, are in chapters 2 and 3, and that's composed of the letters to the seven churches. The things which will take place after this comprise the rest of the book, chapter 4 to 22. Now, I don't have a chart for the, uh, the chronological structure of the book. Most people tend to read the book in strict chronological order. In other words, from chapter 1 right through to chapter 22 and want to put the events in that order. But we should be aware that you can get into trouble doing that if you try and work out a timeline for any things, which I'll show you in a moment. We have to realise that John used a certain writing style. And chapters 11, 12 and 13 are what we call parenthetical insertions. So although they appear to be in the middle of the tribulation period, they're not. The events in them finish in the middle of the tribulation period, but they begin at the uh, end of chapter 5 before chapter 6, which starts to describe 
the period. And if you do that, you can work out a proper chronology. So that's what uh, the way the chronology works. There's a special blessing in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 3, and also at the end of the book. It says this, Blessed is the one who reads about the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now keep that time is near in the back of your thoughts. But can you say, I'm blessed? blessed. Come on, you can do better than that. I'm blessed. blessed. You are. The inclusion of this particular uh, blessing anticipates that many people actually won't read the book or won't keep its uh, prophetic revelation, won't keep to the words in it. And we know that that is a reality. That's what's happening in the world today. Many people dismiss it. Many people don't understand it. And the reason that they don't understand it is because the language in the book is highly symbolic. And it comes from what I call the Older Testament, or I've explained before, a made-up word called the Tanakh, which is a, uh, a compilation of the Hebrew words for the divisions of the uh, Old Testament. T for Torah, the first five books of the uh, Bible, and for the Nevi'im, which are the writings, and K for the Ketuim, which are the prophets. So those three divisions cover the whole of the Old Testament. So we often refer to the Old Testament as the Tanakh. As you can see by that little graph there, there are 800 verses in the book of Revelation, but there are 590 references or allusions or quotes to the Old Testament itself. So in one, in almost two-thirds of the book, there's a reference to an Old Testament thing or person or event. And we need to know our Old Testament, especially the book of Daniel, before we can really understand Revelation. But for us as Christians and people in churches, one of the most important aspects of the book are the seven churches, uh, the seven letters to the seven churches Have you ever wondered why Paul chose those churches or Jesus chose them? Because I know that Jesus was dictating and telling Paul exactly what to write. Why did he choose those seven churches and not others? Why didn't he choose Rome? You may not be like me. I think about these types of of things and, you know, you may not. But you can see there where the uh, little balloons are, like a, you know, a Google map and that type of thing, that you can see Patmos in the sea there. And this was an ancient Roman mail route. So Paul would post his letter, if you like, or his letters from the Isle of Patmos. A ship would take them to number one, Ephesus, and drop off the letter for Ephesus. And then they would go on to Smyrna and so on right through, ending up in Laodicea. Now, we have to understand as well the importance of these seven letters. This is history written in advance. It's the history of the church. But more than that, it's uh, the phases 
that an individual church can go through in its life. And more than that, again, it's the phases that a Christian may go through in his spiritual walk. So we need to read those. If you want to know how, a church, how healthy a church is, we don't need other things. We don't need surveys and that sort of stuff. You need to look at the letters in Revelation because they'll tell you how healthy a church is. Let's just go through this very quickly. Ephesus were the apostolic church from Jesus' death, 33 AD, through to 100 AD, which they think was uh, the death of John, the last apostle. Smyrna was the persecuted church, 100 to 300. Roman emperors declared themselves gods and asked that the church bow down to them, much as Nebuchadnezzar did in Daniel's day. We see patterns repeating throughout the Bible. God loves patterns. When he gives us patterns, we should look at them because he repeats them and repeats them. The third drop-off place was Pergamos, and that was known as the union of state and church. That's the time of Constantine, Emperor Constantine, when Constantine proclaimed the, uh, the Christian religion as the legal religion of the church, and that ran from one, uh, 300 to 500. And then we have a very long period. We have Thyatira, and that's the Roman Catholic Church. We should realize that there was only one Christian church in that time, and it was dominated by the Roman Catholic Church. And that went from 500 to 1400 under the popes and all sorts of things there. In about 1000, about one, the first millennium, the church did split, the Catholic Church did split. Catholic simply means universal. Right? So the universal church split into two legs. There was the Roman church headquartered in Rome, and there was the Eastern church headquartered in Constantinople. The Roman church was the Western church. The Eastern church was the, uh, uh, the church in Constantinople. Then we go on to Sardis, which is the Reformation church, 1400 to 1700. That's the time that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the, uh, uh, the church at uh, Gutenberg. Right? And that set off the Reformation. By the way, do you realize that 2017 is the 500th anniversary of that act where he knocked the, you know, nailed his thesis to the door? 2017 is a remarkable year for a whole number of uh, things, which some people may say are coincidences, anniversaries and that type of thing. Uh, but I don't believe they are. I believe that they're there and that God has a design. And we can see that design in the book of Revelation. Second last, we get to Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love. And that's the missionary and the evangelical church. Right? And that hasn't ended. That was a subcategory coming out of uh, the Reformation where people started to go out to other languages, to other countries, and to proclaim the gospel. And that started in 1700 and will continue until the end, until the rapture occurs.
but the last part and the age that we're in at the moment is the Laodicean church, the apostate church, the backslidden church, the lazy church, the comfortable church, in the West especially the rich church. We sometimes get so wrapped up in our own lives and our own possessions, we forget what we should be doing. And this is a church that Jesus described as lukewarm. He said he would spit it out of his mouth. And that's the age that we are in at the moment. Not this church, but other churches out there. Huh? Well, it's true. It's true. But other churches out there have gone that way. And Jesus said he would spit them out of his mouth because they're lukewarm. And that's where we are at the moment. And then, of course, the, uh, the rapture comes at the end. Now, I'm giving you today a pre-tribulation rapture view. If you don't know what that means, it means that the, rap the rapture, I believe, will come before the tribulation. That the church, for many, many reasons, will not go through the rapture. In the book of Revelation, we find that the church is gone Never mentioned again, mentioned 19 times in the first three chapters. But when you come to chapter 4, verse 1, the church is never mentioned again. When you look at the symbolism in chapter 1, Jesus tells us some of the symbols. He says that the uh, lampstand of seven, you know, the Jewish lampstand has seven candle holders on it. Right? He tells us that that lampstand represents the seven churches. Next time we see that lampstand, it's in heaven. The church is in heaven. And you'll see more of that in a minute. But a timeline, a very simple timeline of the end. So we're in the present age, the church age. And I believe we then get the rapture. The rapture occurs just before the beginning of the tribulation period. The tribulation period is broken into two, three and a half year periods. Pers tribulation simply means persecution. The great persecution, or what Jesus called the great tribulation, is the second half of that period. And then, after that, Jesus comes again. We get the, eternal, the uh, millennial reign of Christ. He will reign on earth for a thousand years, and then Satan is loosed again one last time, and we go into the eternal state. Now, prophecy has been moving at an alarming rate since the, uh, the return of Israel to the homeland. And we're seeing prophecies being fulfilled almost daily. But there are two events which I believe will happen prior to the tribulation time and prior to the rapture. The first of those is found in Isaiah 17.1. It relates to the destruction of Damascus. Damascus is in Syria. You can stand on the, uh, the border of Israel and Damascus and look 13 miles and you'll see, look through a telescope of that, and you'll see 13 miles away the city of Damascus. And it's half in ruins already. 
There's only half of it left, and it's inhabited by ISIS fighters and, and that type of thing. The word is that Saddam Hussein in Iraq moved his biological and chemical weapons about three weeks before uh, the U.S. invaded. Where did he move them to? It's said that he moved them to Syria. And that they're buried in caves in Syria underneath places like hospitals and, and that type of thing. Uh, you know, public places, not military institutions. And in fact, I read that Israel actually intercepted a, uh, uh, a convoy of biological and chemical weapons bound for Iran. And we know that Iran is perhaps the greatest threat in the Middle East to Israel at the moment. And it would appear that if there's any thought that ISIS will use those weapons against Israel, Israel will destroy the city in one foul swoop. It might be nuclear, it might not. Right? But that's one thing which we can look for and see happening. If we see that happening, then we know that the clock is moving faster and faster. The other event that I can see is Ezekiel 38, Gog and Magog. Anybody ever read Ezekiel 38, the, the prophecies there? Can't, yeah, I can't see. Ezekiel 38 talks about a great war, and people normally call it World War III. Ezekiel 38 talks about a great war against Israel, and it names the countries which will be in that war. The countries of uh, the Middle East, most of them will be in that war against uh, Israel. Turkey, which was the, uh, the old Ottoman Empire, right, ruled the whole of Europe for hundreds and hundreds of years, got as far as Spain, never actually got into to Britain. But that was the Ottoman Empire, the Turkish Empire. That was the Islamic Empire. And they long for a return to that empire. You'll see slogans that, you know, uh, or people in demonstrations holding up cards that say uh, that Islam will rule the world. And that is what Islam wants to do. They want to rule the world. They want to get back. They, they have an end times prophecy, very similar to ours, but they have what they call a caliphate. And the caliphate would be equal to the Antichrist and would rule the world. So the Battle of Gog and Magog has all those in it. Also has uh, Russia. Iran is certainly there. And the nuclear power deal in Iran, which President Obama allowed to go through, allows Iran to develop nuclear weapons. And if Iran ever develops a nuclear weapon or gets close to it, I can guarantee Israel will take it out. Again, with missiles and, and that sort of stuff. But nevertheless, all of these nations come against Israel. Tiny Israel. But God steps in, as he has done in so many of their wars and conflicts previously. He steps in and his hand 
destroys, I think it's about a third of the total armies of the other nations, of the nations which come against them. Now, these two events I see as a natural precursor to the signing or to the enforcement or the confirmation of a peace treaty between Israel and all the other nations. Recently, the UN issued a, uh, a declaration and stated that the land of Israel should be divided. Israel won't allow, well, Israel may, but God won't allow the land of Israel to be divided. He promises in his word that he will send destruction against anybody who tries to uh, divide the land. So what will happen is Damascus, then Gog and Magog, defeated. The power of the uh, Islamic states vastly reduced. And Israel will then sign a peace treaty with them. And Israel will be in safety and security for that period of time. And the word says that when they're in safety and security, the Antichrist will rise and destruction will come upon them. In the church age, after Jesus was crucified, the Jews, as we know, had rejected Jesus. God is not finished with Israel. God has a plan for Israel, always did. They're his set-aside people, his special people. And even though they rejected him, he is coming back for them. The church age is God's focus on the Gentiles. At the end of the church age, at the beginning of the tribulation, God's focus returns to Israel. Remember, in a pre-tribulation rapture point of view, the church is no longer there for the tribulation. The prophecies in Daniel, Daniel's 70th week, Daniel's 70th week is a prophecy to his people, to Israel, not to the Gentiles, because we won't be here. There will still be Gentiles, there will be unbelievers who will go through the tribulation. There may even be people who say that they are Christians, but really aren't, who will be left behind and will go through the tribulation. The good news there is that people can still be saved during the tribulation period, but they will pay a high price for it. They may be beheaded. And we see in Revelation later on the uh, martyred saints under the altar of God who were beheaded. And that happens during the tribulation period. So that's the tribulation period. We see the peace treaty. We see Israel at the midpoint fleeing into the wilderness, probably to Petra right? in Jordan. Petra is a, uh, a place that God seems to have set aside for Israel, for Israel's safekeeping, to hide them out of the, the, the way of the Antichrist, the dragon, and that sort of thing, until they repent. Until they repent and they cry out for the coming of the Lord. And then the Lord will come. And that will usher in the great throne judgment and those types of things. All right. So what I've prevented so, presented so far is fairly typical 
It's not, there are people who disagree with it, but it's not uh, way, way, way out there. What I intend to present next could be seen as a bit controversial. There will be people who won't agree with it, but we need to understand that if you disagree with it, if you disagree with me, that's okay. There's no, re there's no reason why we shouldn't talk, and I'm not going to try and enforce this particular view on anyone. There are a number of different views of revelation and how revelation works out. Right? We have to understand as well that these are not salvation issues. Whether the rapture occurs before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, or at the end of the tribulation, doesn't affect your salvation. If you're a Christian and you're following the words in the book and living the way we're supposed to live, you're saved. And whenever that rapture happens, you will go up. So it's not a salvation issue. I know that I will spend eternity in heaven with people whom I've disagreed on. And the only way we're really going to know is when it happens. All right? So that's really, you know, uh, a warning that, that I have to give. There are no easy answers to this one, but we need to do some background. What we're going to do for the rest of this presentation is we're going to take a trip to space. So, are you ready for blast-off? Your, ro your rocket ship ready? But I, try, I uh, promise you we will come back to Earth and wind it all out there. But we need to look firstly at the Feasts of the Lord. Uh, we're going to go away from Revelation just a little bit, but it does have a very significant bearing on Revelation. Right? There are four Feasts of Israel which have already been fulfilled. These feasts are prophetic. God says that the Hebrews have been rehearsing these feasts since they were instituted back in Leviticus. They've been rehearsing them, getting ready for the real time, or the real time it happens. The first four feasts are the Feast of Passover, which was... Uh, fulfilled by Jesus at his crucifixion. His blood was spilt. The second one is unleavened bread. At unleavened bread, the Jews or the Hebrews take out any leaven. Right? Leaven is yeast. It makes bread rise. And leaven is symbolic of sin. So they take out any sin during this feast, any uh, leaven in the house, and they put it aside take it to a storehouse or something, and then they can bring it back in. That's why they eat uh, unleavened bread during this particular period of time. Jesus, when he was in the tomb, was wrapped up in a shroud like the, uh, the leavened bread, like the, the leaven wrapped up in a shroud. The third feast is first fruits. We take up first fruit offerings. We know that Jesus is the first fruits of salvation. And that was filled at his resurrection. Right? The fourth feast which has been fulfilled by the Lord is the Feast of Pentecost. And we know that's the giving of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, 
when the Holy Spirit came down with tongues of fire and uh, people spoke in diverse languages, it says, that was the fulfillment of the fourth feast, the Feast of Pentecost. And then, in reality, we've had a 2,000-year gap between those feasts and now. The next feast, because they're prophetic and they're filled in order, the next feast to be fulfilled is the Feast of Trumpets. And that will be fulfilled at the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation period. Jesus will fulfill that one. The one after that is atonement, and that will be fulfilled at the second coming of Jesus Christ. The last one is tabernacles, where God will come, Jesus will come, dwell physically on the earth, and rule with a rod of iron during the millennial period. So those are the feasts, right? And as I say, they are prophetic. We have four fulfilled. The next one on the calendar is the Feast of Trumpets. These feasts uh, are appointed times. They're appointments with the Lord. They are strictly to be kept by the, the Jews who are still under the law. We don't have to keep them. Right? because we are not under the law, we are under a new covenant. But the Jews who still believe that their Messiah is coming, who missed Jesus Christ, keep these feasts. And it says in Leviticus 23.4, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations which you shall uh, proclaim at the time appointed for them. God has an appointed time for each of these feasts. Yom Teruah, the Feast of Trumpets, we're going to have a look at. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. I'll come back to that in a minute. There are different Hebrew names for the Feast of Trumpets. Some of them are here. There are more. Teshua, the Day of Repentance. Think about these feasts in the context of a rapture and the beginning of the tribulation. And think about what the names reveal about that event. Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year, the birthday of the world. In Jewish tradition, the uh, world was created on the feast of Rosh Hashanah. And Rosh Hashanah ushers in the first day of the first month of the new Hebrew year, like New Year's Day. The Hebrews run on a different calendar right, than we do. And that's a lunar calendar, whereas ours is a Julian calendar. Theirs is a 360-day uh, yeah, calendar, and ours is a 364. Sorry. All right. Uh, Yom Teruah, the Feast of Trumpets, also known as the Awakening Blast. What happens on the Feast of Trumpets is that they blow a series of short trumpet blasts with a device of ram's horn, big ram's horn, known as the shofar, and they blow that, and it is loud, 
So they blow a series of short blasts, and then they blow one long, loud blast. So as long as the, uh, uh, the priest can hold his breath. And it is heard for miles and miles around. And that's known as the last trump. Don't confuse that last trump with the seven trumpets of Revelation. They are two entirely different things. Yom Hadim, the day of judgment. Hamalach, the coronation day of the Messiah. Yom Hazikaron, the day of remembrance. Shevlal Shel Mashlach, time of Jacob's trouble. Heard that name before, haven't we? Time of Jacob's trouble. And the birth pangs of the Messiah. Natzal, the resurrection. What happens at the, uh, uh, the rapture? The dead in Christ rise first. And we meet up with them, those who are alive in Christ, meet up with them in the air. The resurrection. Shofar Haggadah, the last trump. As I say, don't confuse it with the seven trumpets of Revelation. You'll find it in 1 Corinthians 15, 52. And I don't have the Hebrew name, the opening of the gates. What gates? The pearly gates. We'll get up there and St. Peter will be there and he'll open the pearly gates and in we'll all go. Doesn't that speak of the rapture? These are all Jewish names. But there are two which require special attention. The first is the wedding ceremony, and the second is the hidden day, the day that no man knows. Isn't that interesting? We have to understand that we, as the bride of Christ, will be going to a Jewish wedding. We're not going to a Western Christian wedding. We're going to a Jewish wedding. And Jewish weddings and tradition had certain rules and characteristics. After the groom made the contract with his betrothed and with the betrothed's family, he would leave. He would go away. He would leave his bride-to-be behind. He may not see her again for sometimes up to two years. The reason for that is that he had to build a home for them on his father's land. We know those scriptures in John 14, 2 to 4. If he goes, he goes to build a, uh, his father's house in many mansions, and he goes to prepare a place for us. But if he goes, he will return. Now, the bridegroom's father was the person who had to inspect the building and approve of the finished construction. So in Hebrew tradition, the timing was taken out of the hands of the groom. The bridegroom's father might be away down the fields for a week or two weeks because he had to walk and with no transport, looking after the sheep and the animals and that sort of thing, and he wouldn't get back. So the time that he would get back, no one knew. It was totally up to the, uh, the father. Often, as well, the groom's friends would come and pester him. And they would say to him, when are you going to get your bride? And he traditionally replied with these words, no one knows 
not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Now, do they sound familiar? They're the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, 35. But at the time this tradition was going on, it was going on for hundreds of years, thousands of years maybe, well before Jesus came, well before Matthew wrote his gospel. So Matthew has echoed these words in, uh, from tradition in his gospel. Some of you may remember that I mentioned once before that when Jesus was on the cross and he said, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That that was a reference to Psalm 23 and a reference to a part of a psalm of that is a reference to the whole psalm. There was no doubt that the Jews at that time who were around the cross understood exactly what he was talking about. Well, the same thing is happening here. Uh, everybody knew that when those words, no one knows the day or the hour, everybody knew in Jewish tradition that that was pointing to a specific day. And I'll come to that in a second. The groom would take his bride to the house, and this is important, that he had prepared for them, and they would enter the wedding chamber, and they would remain there for seven days. Now, the seven days speaks of the seven weeks, and a week is seven years, right? Uh, we're talking about the it's symbolic of the tribulation period. They would go in, they would be hid, they would be safe until the marriage was consummated. And only after they had come out, after the seven days, would the uh, celebrations begin. The hidden day, right, links in. Six of the seven feasts of Israel begin on the full moon cycle. But there is one feast which begins on the new moon cycle, and that's the Feast of Trumpets. It's the only feast celebrated over two days. All the others are single-day feasts, and it's celebrated over two days for a very specific reason. In Jesus' day, unlike today, if you look at a Hebrew calendar today, because we have astronomical devices and that sort of stuff, it will tell you exactly when the feast starts, right down to the second, because we, we can tell by the stars. But in Jesus' day, they had to tell by the stars as well. So what they had to do was two priests had to go out onto the Temple Mount, and they would look up into the night sky, and if they could see the first sliver of the new moon, they would cry out, sanctified, sanctified. And what would happen then is they would blow the shofars. You would get the long last trump signifying that the feast had begun. And on the hillsides around Jerusalem, people would hear the trump and they would light bonfires. And those bonfires would say that the feast had begun. Right? Say, we don't have to do that now. But the two days, if they went out and they could not see the first sliver of the new moon, it might be overcast, it could be pouring rain, uh, other conditions could be in play. They might be part blind like me, but you know, one way or another. They would come back 
the very next night and look again, hoping that they would see this uh, first sliver of the new moon. And it's for that reason, I think you're a slide behind me or are you one in front of me? Behind? That's it. Uh, it was for this reason that this feast, the Feast of Trumpets, became known as the day that no man knows. So we do know the day. Right? We know part of the day. We know which day it's linked to. What we don't know is when that day will be and the hour. But we can link it to the Feast of Trumpets. Matthew uses that phrase and it points the listener to the Feast of Trumpets. Now let me be very clear here. I'm not setting dates. I'm not a prophet. I'm looking at the word of God and I'm giving you my interpretation and the interpretation of many, many others. It's highly likely that a rapture will occur on the Feast of Trumpets. But this in no way allows us to give the actual date and the hour. Right, we're going to go fairly quickly from here. I've got a five-minute video that I want to get, you, so get to, so I'm going to set the background for it. What I'm going to show you is biblical astronomy, not astrology. God placed the heavens and the constellations and the stars in them. He named them. And the constellations, when God named them, show the gospel message in the signs of what we call the zodiac. The zodiac means a path or a way. Right? And, of course, Satan, like he does everything else, has hijacked what God meant for good and has turned it to evil. And that's how we get horoscopes and all that sort of stuff, which, of course, are uh, strictly forbidden in the Bible. We'll skip that one. Uh, there are the 12 constellations. And we need a couple more slides. That's it. The Virgin. All right. Virgo the Virgin. I'm not going to go through these. You can see them. I'll make notes available, not today, but another day. All right. Uh, but this shows the message of the gospel through Virgo. I'll read this one only. Virgo is the promised seed of the woman. And when we look at the, uh, the other constellations, each constellation can have up to four other constellations associated with it, the names of which and the individual stars of those constellations add illumination onto the meaning. But this one is the promised seed of the woman, the desire of all nations, a two-natured being who will come to harvest the fields. Right? Now, I'm going to skip through the rest of the uh, zodiac signs. You can look them up, as I say. I'll make notes available if anyone wants them. Finishes with Leo the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, aroused for the rendering of the enemy and the old serpent, the cup of divine wrath is poured out uh, while birds eat the, prey, uh, eat the prey, devour him. And of course, that's Satan. Talks about Satan, uh, the, well, not Satan, the, uh, uh, the beast's body 
lying in a field and being eaten by uh, birds. We also have to realize that the planets were called wandering stars. And there's significance to the planets. Jupiter is the king planet. Mercury and Mars are archangels. This is what they represent. Saturn represents Satan. And Venus represents the bright morning star. We'll skip through these. These are the, uh, in Genesis, about God placing the, uh, the stars in the, in the sky. He places them there for, firstly, signs. And what's a sign? It's a word connoting a visible event. But it's intended to convey meaning beyond that which is normally perceived in the outward appearance of the event. So it's telling us that these signs are there. There's something hidden in these signs other than what we see when we look up to the stars in the sky. We see all these stars. But there's meaning behind those. We've done the appointed times. Uh, I'm going to read Revelation 12, 1 and 2, 3 and 4, 5 and 6, and then we'll watch the video. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. The woman in uh, Israel is always depicted, the woman in scripture is always depicted as Israel. She's always in birth pangs. Right? Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems or crowns. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that uh, he might devour her child. All right, for the sake of time, what we might do here is we'll go to the video. Can we put up the slide just before the video? That's the one. All right. This event, this particular configuration of the stars has never occurred before. We can go through with uh, astronomical programs like this, and we can go back and we can see that it's never happened before. Now, don't get me wrong, it has happened in part. At the time of Jesus' birth, the woman, Virgo, appeared but without the crown at her head. So it has appeared in part, but it has never appeared in its fullness. It's never matched exactly the book of Revelation. And that occurs this year, on the 21st, of, uh, 21st to the 23rd of September. One of the major features about it is that the planet Neptune actually enters into, uh, uh, sorry, planet Jupiter, the king planet, enters into the womb of the Virgin. And it stays there for 42 weeks. It's in there now. If you were to look up uh, with a telescope, you'll see... Uh, Jupiter going backwards and forwards in the womb of the woman. It then leaves the womb of the woman and is caught up, Revelation 12 further on tells us. The word there for caught up is harpazo, which is translated into the Latin raptus, meaning rapture, which is then translated into English, meaning caught up. 
So if you see the, the rapture isn't in the Bible, the word is in the Latin Bible. It's there, right? There's no doubt about it. But it's the same word that is used here in Revelation for the child being caught up. So we said that Israel is the woman. The dragon is the beast system. The child is the church. So let's play that five-minute video, and then we'll just finish. And the moon under her feet, sun, and the moon under her feet. But this time, there is something fascinating going on above her head. A crown is a symbol of royalty. The constellation of Ari, which is above the woman's head, represents the royal tribe of Judah and is made of nine stars which you can see are all connected by the faint blue lines on the screen. What's interesting on this particular date, however, is that three wandering stars have now joined them and line up above her head, making a crown of 12 stars. The date this appears is the 23rd of September, 2017, the Feast of Trumpets. But what about the rest of Revelation 12? Well, it goes on to say, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child he might devour it. Later, in chapter 12, we are told that who this great dragon is. He's the ancient serpent of old, Satan. There are several constellations representing serpents or dragons, but three of them in particular appear to form one great serpent winding its way around the other constellations in the sky. As the serpent winds around the sky, it weaves around ten constellations. Could these represent the ten horns? Finally, the tail of the serpent is a constellation called Hydra, a very large constellation with a transit time of eight hours. Because of the Earth's rotation, the stars appear to move across the sky, rising in the east and setting in the west. It takes 24 hours for them to complete a cycle. And so one third of a cycle, eight hours, actually equates to covering one third of the sky. The tail of the serpent sweeps out a third of the sky. In this picture, if you look carefully, you can see its head is near the feet of the woman, waiting to devour what she gives birth to. You can also see, just above it, the constellation of Hercules. This constellation depicts the head of the Hydra, a seven-headed serpent. At the head of the serpent is a constellation Corona Borealis which is a crown, consisting of seven stars. If all this wasn't enough, see what else we've discovered in the following animation that runs from the 23rd of September 2017 through to early 2018. For this next video, we want you to watch Mercury, and to help you, we've put red markers on it, as we did before with Venus. So let's watch what happens as Mercury moves across the sky 
towards Saturn. Mercury represents the Archangel Michael. Saturn represents Satan. As it approaches Saturn, it begins to slow down and goes into retrograde. Saturn then moves away towards the constellation of Sagittarius, which is, as we mentioned before, associated with the Antichrist. However, Mercury comes back for a second strike and passes Saturn on the 13th of January in 2018. It then continues to move away, leaving Saturn behind, still in the constellation of Sagittarius. And what is notable about this is that Saturn, representing Satan, remains in the constellation of Sagittarius, who is associated with the Antichrist, for three years. Will do. All right. Uh, the other thing that we should very quickly be aware of, God loves numbers. Numbers in scripture have a meaning. The Hebrew year that we're in at the moment is number 5777. Number five is representative of grace. We're in the church age, the age of grace. Seven is representative of a completion a bring to the end of something. So put together, it's the end of the age of grace. The end this year, 5777, the end of the church age, the end of the age of grace. And we expect the rapture and the tribulation to follow after that. Very quickly, what do we do now? And what do we continue to do if nothing happens? Bearing in mind, God has placed this great sign in the, in the sky, which means more than just its obvious appearance, has never happened before, will not happen again, at least in the next 1,000 years, if it ever happens again. Does it signify the rapture and the end of the age? This date, the 23rd of September, or 21st of September, falls on the Feast of Trumpets this year. So we know we've linked the Feast of Trumpets to the rapture and the end of the, or beginning of the tribulation, and we know that that sign appears in the sky at this particular time. But whether anything happens or not is entirely up to God. Not to me, not to you, not to anyone else. But we occupy until he comes. So what we need to do is walk submissively. Right? One of the main themes of Revelation is obedience. Obedience to his uh, words in that particular book and his words in general. The second thing we need to do is to worship triumphantly. And that means we praise God, we praise his name triumphantly and with exuberance and conviction. God loves it when we take scripture that describes his attributes, his love, his, uh, his magnificence, and we pray that back to, 
to God. He loves it. They're his own words. They, they can't be wrong. They're, they're true. Right? So we need to do that. We need to witness urgently. We have to spread the word. We only have so much time in which to do it, and our time, I believe, is running out. We're getting very, very much closer to it than ever before. We need to work fervently. We need to work, and we need to work hard. We need to put our efforts into evangelism, into obeying God's word, and living a Christ-like life. We need to watch expectantly. God expects us to know the signs and to interpret the signs. He doesn't want us to be ignorant of these things. We are not going to be here, as I say, during the tribulation. So we need to work. We need to work hard and we need to, like the brides, right, who were, you know, the, the parable of the ten virgins, who were in the house, and five of them were ready, five of them were expectant, and I envisaged the vision that they were looking, parting the curtains and looking out the window, waiting for the bridegroom to return. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. Please subscribe to hear more sermons from Epicenter Church. 